There is a battle going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. And good evening and welcome to America Can We Talk. This is your host, Debbie George Addis. I'll start by letting you know that we actually pre-recorded this show about 10 days ago. And so I feel like in this era where the news breaks and amazing stories happen every day, I better put that out there right now. So uh, if, if we don't cover some stories that happened in the last 10 days, now you know why. Um, but the themes of the show, they never change. They're always about talking truth about America, about the goodness and greatness of the American people, the exceptional nature of America as founded. And we have a great, great show lined up for you tonight involving those themes. So uh, we are taking a short break uh, after this. Uh, so we'll be um, out, out, gone for 10 days, but uh, this will be, the, we're recording 10 days ahead of time, but this show will be uh, timely nonetheless. So I want to turn in this opening segment, this America Can We Talk? I try to do this uh, kind of run through the Speak Up for America segment. I want to talk about the challenge we have in this country and really around the world, getting government and media and political figures to speak truthfully about the challenge we face with respect to radical Islam, or frankly, as I'm about to tell you, from Islam itself. I want to start by telling you, you may have heard the case of a Syrian Muslim who in Germany, he was 27 years old, uh, he blew himself up outside of a music festival. Here's the headline. I want you to listen to the headline that actually ran, that Reuters followed suit running the headline, Syrian man denied asylum, killed in German blast. Another headline, Muslim suicide bomber, as they describe this Muslim suicide bomber, but here's the headline, Syrian migrant killed in German blast. Stop and just let that soak in. The guy blew himself up and he's being painted in these headlines as you would think, my gosh, he happened to be standing out a factory explosion and happened to be killed innocently. And the reason this matters so much is that this is just a minute, tiny example of the kinds of things that the media around the world and frankly, many governments around the world are trying to do to cause more and more people or to cause people to fail to focus in on the real problem. And I'll tell you folks, the problem is not every Muslim. I am the first to concede there are millions, in fact, billions, a majority of Muslims who do not commit jihad, who do not commit violence, and who have no plans to do so. However, it is also true that the, the vast majority of terrorist, of violent actions around the world are the result of Islam, of the teachings itself of Islam. And the reason I'm just going to tell you, give you, we all saw, I think, in the, a couple weeks ago, the beheading of a Catholic priest inside his church during a day, saying daily mass by two Islamic terrorists. I guess there's been a third one arrested now, too. But by these terrorists who just broke into a church during mass, beheaded the, the um, priest, and the reason I'm I'm glad these stories get out there, I, I'm in fact, as I'm telling you, this is being pre-recorded 10 days ahead. I don't know what will have happened between today and this pre-recording and the time you hear this show, which will be August 7th. But I do know that we have a terrorist attack around the world 
pretty much about every 83 hours. And our, what we need to be demanding is truth and honesty from our elected officials and from the governments about the source of this. So I just want to tell you, when we have, in this campaign season of 2016, we have a debate about how do we deal with terrorism around the world. And we're going to be talking later about this, too, what the Democrats versus Republicans at their conventions, what their anointed candidates are now saying. We end up talking, the issue that makes is relevant here is what do we do about Islamic immigration to America? Who's coming here? How do we vet them? How do we know? Hillary Clinton is proposing a 550% increase in Islamic immigration coming to America. Let that sink in. That's huge. As we watch the slaying of this this Catholic priest in uh, Normandy, as we see the blasts that happen the, uh, in, around Europe, in Paris, in Beirut, we saw they use a truck as the vehicle of destruction in Nice. We see attacks in America. I'm just going to tell you why intelligent Americans can have a legitimate reason. It's not bigoted. It's not biased. It's based on what is taught in Islam. Just a few examples. The chief justice of Saudi Arabia, Sheikh Abdul bin Muhammad bin Muhammad, teaches at first fighting was prohibited then it was permitted, and after that it was made obligatory. He clearly identifies two groups of Muslims are obligated to fight, and they are obligated to fight, they who start fighting with Muslims, and they who worship gods other than Allah. And I'm telling you, I'm holding in my hand something I will put up again on the America Can We Talk Facebook page. Dozens and dozens of statements, not by random crazy terrorists, by the Grand Mufti of Egypt, the highest Muslim religious authority in the world, who said Muslims must kill non-believers wherever they are unless they convert to Islam. The most prominent Muslim scholar in the 20th century, Sheikh Abu Allah Maudaudi, says the Islamic State seeks to mold every aspect of life and activity in such a state no one can regard any field of his affairs as personal and private. And so it goes on and on. The reason I'm telling you all this is this. In this campaign election season, we have a choice between people who are saying what the problem is, which is on the GOP side, and the Democrat Party who continues to refuse to tell us what it is. Come back after the break. We'll talk about it a little bit more. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. You were talking in my first five in this segment about you were really faced with a stark choice in this country in this election season this fall of a party that refuses to identify the nature of the problem of the violence and destruction and barbaric murders around the world that are being conducted by people who are followers of Islam and a party that is willing to identify Islamic terrorism as a problem. And I want to just, we're going to, I'm going to turn in a moment to talk about other differences between the parties as we're in this campaign election season. But I do want to share this, um, a couple of facts. I just think when your friends say, well, you can't lump everybody together. You can't say all Muslims are violent. Be ready to respond with talking points. Of course, all Muslims are not violent. No one is saying all Muslims are violent. No one's saying that. What they're saying is the source of the Islam, the source of the aggressive violence around the world is the teachings of Islam. 
It's not every Muslim, but it is the teachings of Islam. It matters to know that. So I'm just going to mention a couple of things about the teachings of Islam. And so they have, as they're obviously their founding document, they have the Quran. There are 114 chapters or surahs in the Quran. 114, I'm sorry, 109 verses directly in the Quran that directly call for Muslims to engage in war against non-believers for the sake of Islamic rule. The Quran is teaching this. And for those of you saying, well, yeah, but the Bible has things it says in the Old Testament. And if we had Jews or Christians engaging in this type of violence, that would be a relevant point, but it's not. That's not what's happening. But it's important to understand that the people who are committing jihad are following that not just the teachings in the Quran, the teachings of the other holy texts within Islam. They are following the life of Muhammad. They are following the leaders of today, leaders around the uh, Middle Eastern world, the Islamic world. I could, uh, as I say, there are so many quotes uh, about what precisely leaders in courts, judges, elected officials, schools, from colleges down to elementary schools, leaders in Islamic countries around the world who are all saying it is the duty of Muslims to convert or kill infidels. So once you understand that, the idea of wanting to actually have a really important vetting process, a really significant and effective vetting process, You'd be crazy not to. And, and before we turn to the other topic I want to hit, try to hit in this segment is, I want to mention about, you know, we see these things happening in um, Europe, and they're just heartbreaking. I mean, many Americans have gone to France on vacation. They've checked it out. They know. They've been to Nice. They've been that very street where the Bastille Day attack occurred. They've been, they've been there. They've been to little random churches in the outskirts of the cities in, Paris, in, in France. They've seen these places. And it starts to get more real to Americans. So speaking of getting real to Americans, you can find a a website which is called What Makes Islam So Different? And it has an actual listing of Islamic terror that's occurred on American soil. And this is since 9-11. There have been 72 attacks, murderous attacks in America on behalf of Islam since 9-11. These are just... It's important to have this information because, you know, there's an effort by the media. I mentioned a headline in the previous segment where someone tried to characterize the guy who was the suicide bomber as a victim of a blast. We have a willing media in America today that simply is tries very hard to ignore facts, to not report stories, to mischaracterize who is the assailant. I mean, you hear these stories. When you heard, I'll just say it this way, when you woke up on that one Sunday morning and you heard there was a horrible, murderous attack at an Orlando nightclub, did you think, did it, did it even give you, did you even take a nanosecond to think it's probably an attack by a radical Muslim? I mean, I didn't. And then you hear you, you hear all these attacks around the world. You do not, no one thinks, gosh, wonder why that guy drove that truck down in Bastille Day in Nice. Wonder why he killed all those people. You hear the stories and you know what it is. And folks, I have to tell you, it might be amazing for me to say this next sentence. I actually know Muslims in America who are friends who are perfectly peaceful. They don't like seeing it either, but it's important for us to fight it, to be able to identify what the problem is. And so we are more insistent, more firmly insistent that we have in America a uh, as we support the willingness of the moderate Muslims and there are moderate Muslims in America we support the ones speaking up 
We do not let the media get away with misrepresenting what's happening, about lying about who are the source of attacks. We have to talk truth about Islam. We have to get to this truth. Islam has to be reformed. Islam has been, since its inception, a largely violent religion. In fact, Dr. Zudi Jasser, who is an American Muslim, who is a has is found is behind an effort to try to moderate modern Islam. He has created a video talking about Islam since its founding has been a conquest ideology. It has been determined to force others to conform to convert to Islam or die since its inception. He talks about the history of Islam. So it's not like this is a sudden uprising. Now it's an ongoing since its inception in the 700s, uh, you know, AD is 600 AD. And after that, Islam has been, has had a track record of violence. And, And so if there are Muslims in America today who want to have Islam survive as a, as a, religion in, in the world, in the modern world, they need to get on board with Zudi Jasser and others who are trying to moderate modern Islam, but we don't help anyone. We do not help the scene by doing what the Democrats suggest, which is to just glom on and say, oh, these people who are jihadists, they are contorting, they're manipulating, they are, they're, they're not representing real Islam. They're following the teacher teachings of Islam from its inception in the Quran, from Muhammad's words out of his mouth, and from the words of the scholars, judges, college professors, school teachers, candidates, elected officials throughout the Middle Eastern world, throughout the Islamic world today. These are comments today that come, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of them. So we can't pretend that there's really no problem with Islam except maybe this tiny little crazy segment. We need to support those people who want to modernize Islam, and it's not our job to do it. But we cannot, we not, cannot continue to wake up to headlines like about the the uh, priest in uh, near Normandy in the Catholic Church near Normandy, France, who was beheaded during a uh, service during a while he was saying mass. It's just not okay. We just can't keep reacting. And I think this is going to be a huge theme in this election cycle: which party is going to say the problem, which and which party is going to fight it. And I think Hillary Clinton's all alone, her policy idea of let's bring, let's just massively increase the number of Islamic refugees we bring to America alone will defeat her and should defeat her because she's willing to say, I put America's safety second and my political correctness first. Okay, so we're going to switch. Speaking of Hillary Clinton, and I'll tell you right after after this next break coming up, I had the amazing pleasure of uh, meeting and talking with Dinesh D'Souza and his wife, Debbie D'Souza, who in her own right is a fabulous advocate. But I met Dinesh D'Souza and had a chance to interview him. So right after our break, I'm going to play that interview. Uh, It is just was fabulous. He's uh, just a stellar um, guy. And I'll tell you more about him after the break. But I want to wrap up this segment by just trying to talk about where we are today in terms of the political parties. You know, Bernie Sanders ran a valiant, valiant socialist campaign within the Democrat Democrat Party. And as you were watching, if you watch the Democrat convention, which I watch pretty much every moment of because I had to be ready to do uh, Fox News radio interviews about the, that convention. But I want to just say a couple of things about what the, it resulted from Bernie Sanders presence in the campaign this election cycle. And that was the Democrat Party got driven even further left much further left. So their problem and now they have a platform, which I just want to point out a couple of 
unbelievable uh, pieces of hypocrisy and also just some kind of amazing leftism that is now has its home in the Democrat platform. And you can say what you want about parties, ignore their platforms. And yes, they do. You know, elected officials ignore their party platforms, but the platforms reflect what the supporters of that party believe. So here are just a few of the uh, nutty things. We actually, we have, you know, when you hear um, Keith Ellison, who's the congressman from Minnesota, praise um, this platform as the most progressive platform in history, yeah, you ought to start to get worried. I will tell you just a couple of things in there. They have, for example, they claim, the Democrats claim they have respect for differences of perspective and belief, and they, they want to support religious liberty. That would be except, of course, that they are just, they have cracked down on Christianity in America, and they take nuns to court to force them to buy contraception. They've tried to limit political speech. They have jailed those and fined those who, ex- who want to actually practice their religion, but they're trying to stake out that thing, that area. I don't think so. The Democrat platform also is just a, um, it, it uh, t- took on, because it took on so much of Bernie's supporters, it has a very negative, harsh language attacking fracking. It has, we're getting up to a break here. They're pegging a $15 an hour minimum wage over the next several years. They want to repeal the Hyde Amendment that bars using tax dollars for abortion. So it is a just a, a platform just to the delight of the far left Democrats. Not what Hillary had in mind, but it's where they are. So this is a campaign cycle where the Democrat Republican differences are huge. I urge you to tune into both of them and stay tuned to hear Dinesh D'Souza. Debbie Georgiatis, and welcome back to America Can We Talk. I mentioned before the break, we had a fabulous opportunity this week to meet with Dinesh D'Souza, who is visiting in Dallas, Texas, and talk with him about his new movie, Hillary's America. Hello, Mr. D'Souza. Uh, hey, it's great to be here, and I'm excited about the movie, which I understand you've seen. Yes, my husband, I had the great pleasure of seeing it last week. And in fact, you and your wife came out on stage afterward, answered questions. It was just really exciting. And I will tell you, the theater was full and people were just really excited. I want to encourage people to see this movie. And I want to just start off by asking you, you have a subtitle or you talked about the idea of the, the Democrats stealing America. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that the there are two classes of people in this country, and the first class of people are the people who create wealth, They're the people who work hard, and they can be entrepreneurs, or they can be workers. But what they're doing is they're actually producing things uh, and then offering them up in the market. The other class of people are the people who produce nothing. Now, if you think of a guy like Obama, a guy like Hillary, uh, what have they ever done? They've never run a business. They've never. They've actually never really even worked. In, in any traditional type of a job. They've never worked for a company or manufactured anything. Essentially, these are, these are community organizers, political activists. Their main product is words, words. And, uh, but these are words that are aimed at stimulating people's resentment, envy, uh, anger, uh, and, and, and they use this politically to try to extract wealth and power from other people and appropriate it to themselves. Uh, this is essentially the political strategy of the Democratic Party. This is what they do. Um, and uh, so uh, in this movie and book, uh, Hillary's America, I just tell the story of the Democrats. And it's a story people don't really know. And it, ru- and it runs completely counter to the Democratic Party's own narrative, which is that they are the party of the good guys and the party of the little guy and the party of the ordinary man and the party of women's suffrage and emancipation from slavery and civil rights. 
and none of that is actually true. I want to turn and talk about that right now. We were just so impressed with your movie, Hillary's America, or a documentary, we should call it, and in particular, tracing the history of the Democrat Party since the time of slavery as being the party that actually was the one that repressed and really assaulted black Americans. And can you just summarize that? Because that is absolutely the opposite of what the Democrat Party sells itself as today. They're the ones who care about minorities and their actual history is just exactly the opposite. Yeah, the Democratic Party championed slavery while the Republican Party opposed and then ended it. The Democratic Party championed segregation and Jim Crow while the Republican Party opposed it. It was a founder, um, it was a delegate to the Democratic National Convention, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who founded the Ku Klux Klan, which was for about 30 years the domestic terrorist arm of the Democratic Party, again opposed by the Republican Party. And so, and not just blacks, the Democrats have also been the party hostile to immigrants, hostile to Latinos. Um, and, um, and there was sympathy for fascism in the 1930s. There's a whole sordid history here, uh, and we lay it out in the movie. Now, the Democrats have been able to cover it up, and the reason they do that is they're able, to, what they've done is they basically say, they take all the things that they did, and they blame it on, on the South. They say the South did slavery. No, it wasn't us, it was the South. Uh, or America did this. Um, uh, we didn't kill the American Indians. America killed the American Indians. No. So in, in every case, the Democrats are at the center of the of the group that's doing these terrible things. But they never apologize. They never provide restitution or reparations. And in fact, unbelievably, they try to blame the Republicans. This is kind of like the very people who poisoned the wells show up as the water commissioner and pretend <laughs> to be solving the problem. Yeah. I love that, and I will say to our listeners, I am a serious student of Republican politics, of the political scene in America. I read voraciously and research, and I learned so much. And I actually read your book, too, your book that refers to the time that you spent um, in a confinement center as a result of your last documentary. I learned so much, and I urge our listeners uh, to see your, your uh, film, too. I do want to talk a little bit about how Somehow, even historically, someone could see your documentary and say, well, you know, yes, so the Democrats were really the ones that did slavery. They were really, the Ku Klux Klan was the military arm of the Democrat Party. They were the ones, the Democrats, who passed the Jim Crow laws. But look at today. Today it is the Democrats who are trying to help black Americans, and the Republicans aren't. So what's your answer to that? What are the Democrats doing today? Well, let's see how the Democrats are actually helping black Americans. In fact, if you go to inner cities today, uh, Oakland or Detroit or Chicago or St. Louis, what do you see? You actually see a kind of urban plantation. Its conditions resemble the old slave plantation in that you have ramshackled, broken down dwellings. You have a family structure that's essentially disintegrated, uh, widespread illegitimacy. You see a high degree of violence that's necessary to keep things under control. Uh, you see that while people basically have necessities, a meager provision of free or some food stamps, on the other hand, no one has any opportunity, no one has any proper education, no one actually gets ahead. And so there's a kind of hopelessness and nihilism that used to define the old slave plantation and now defines inner city life. And just as the Democrats ran the old slave plantations, they run the new plantations, the same people, and they run them kind of in the same way. So the point being, 
The Democratic Party is responsible for black suffering in America today. Inner city Oakland, is it being run by Republicans? No. Democratic mayor, Democratic city officials, Democratic sheriff, Democratic school superintendents. The Democrats have the full responsibility, which is to say the full blame, for the way that they have destroyed so many lives over a period of half a century. That is just so well said. And, you know, really, you say half a century, this current uh, enslavement or modern plantation enslavement of black America is really due in a large part to the social programs, to the creation of great society, the kind of ongoing perpetuating of dependency on government. Is that what you mean? Well, yeah. I'm, what I'm talking about is the fact that what the Democrats like about the new, <coughs> the new urban plantation is it supplies them with a steady stream of voters. Uh, these are people who are valued not for anything else, but only for the fact that they're able, able to keep the Democrats in power. And the reason that these people are uh, Democratic voters is not because they like the Democrats, but because they are dependent on them. The Democrats are sort of, they sort of let down this rope from the top of the building and they tell people, hang on, we'll pull you up. But they only pull you up halfway and then they stop. So you're dangling in midair and you're, you can't climb any higher because they won't let you, but neither can you let go because you'll go crashing down. And so they've got these people where they want them. Uh, it's a form of, I wouldn't say slavery, but it's a form of enslavement. Uh, in which there's a kind of enforced dependency and you can never get out of it. We're speaking tonight with Dinesh D'Souza, who has, whose new film comes out came out this weekend, Hillary's America, The Secret History of the Democrat Party. I want to ask you, so you travel the country, you're taking the message about your film around the country. Do you have any sense that the, the leaders in the black community in anywhere in America, are they starting to get a, to wonder if the Democrats are really on their side? Have you seen some signals or even anecdotal that perhaps Democrats are responding to this message or, de, or minority voters are realizing, hey, we're getting a raw deal here? I think this is a case where um, blacks have been sold on a whole worldview over a long period of time. It's not going to be overnight or easy to convince them to, to switch. Uh, at the best, I think, at this point, <coughs> with this film, I would say, I'm not trying to get blacks to become Republicans. I am trying to get them to reconsider their mindless allegiance to the Democratic Party. The fact that blacks, almost all of them, monolithically vote for the same party, which delivers to them so little. Um, so uh, so uh, re-examination and reconsideration are my first goals. I love that. We only have a couple minutes left here. We're speaking with Dinesh D'Souza. So I read your book. I loved your book and you spoke, or your most recent book, and you spoke about being, I know you were sentenced to a confinement center for a campaign finance law violation uh, that was widely viewed as political retribution. We've talked about that in the show many times that the laws don't apply when the Democrats do things, but only when conservatives do. But you were, you were sentenced to time in a confinement center with really rough characters around you. And so this was, I think, in response, you had Obama's America documentary in 2012 and America Imagine the World Without Her in 2014. So here you are at it again. Aren't you a little bit worried about political retribution? Well, uh, I mean, to be honest, I am a little bit, but um, I uh, tried to learn from my last experience. I tried to turn the lemon into lemonade, uh, far from being embarrassed or trying to hide the fact that I was in this uh, confinement center under the supervision of the Bureau of Prisons, I stick it right in the movie. It's one of the opening scenes in the movie, and it, 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 it's part of the plot. It shows the journey that I'm undertaking uh, now that I am um, have a wider angle on American politics to find out the truth about it. 
uh, look, the Clintons are, they're, they're shady characters. They're uh, Bonnie and Clyde in the White House, you know? And so uh, one, one, if you cross them, you have to be a little bit careful. And so I'm being a little bit careful. Well, again, I want to thank, thank you so very much with Dinesh D'Souza this evening. And I just love your movie. We have about 30 seconds left. You can tell us. So if people get the message of your movie, what do you want them to do to spread it? Well, what I want them to do is go to the website, which is hillarysamericathemovie.com, hillarysamericathemovie.com, and you can watch a trailer, you can put in your zip code, it'll tell you where the movie's playing near you, and share that information, let other people know about it, because uh, this is the way, the, this film is something that can actually have a transformative effect on the whole election debate this year, and you can help make that happen. Dinesh D'Souza, thank you so much. Thank you. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. Do you know I just love that guy, Dinesh D'Souza? I'm so proud of him. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about his, what happened to him after his previous efforts at making documentaries that uh, criticized Democrats didn't go so well. Uh, first of all, he made Obama's America in 2012. So that was a pretty, you know, it was a, a documentary and it was about, it was critiquing President Obama and his policies. And the thing that frustrated the daylights out of the Democrats is that it was a documentary that was actually interesting and fun to watch, and people liked it, and they went to it. So then in 2014, Dinesh D'Souza made America Imagine the World Without Her. Again, Dinesh D'Souza is a Indian-born, um, you know, uh, America. He, is, he came here legally. He became an American citizen. He actually, interestingly, came here to go to college, I think at Dartmouth, went to college, and the longer he was here, he thought, I want to stay here. I'd rather live here. He has amazing stories. I do really, really encourage you to read his most recent book. And this documentary that is out now, Hillary's America, is that book, essentially that book. But part of what he talks about in his more re- most recent book is the difference between living in a country with the rule of law and not the rule of law. And he talks about things that happen, I mean, in India and in many other countries, not just India, but he used that as an example where, you know, the police, it's not just a random policeman might be slightly, uh, you know, susceptible to bribes or corruption. It's just the norm. It is the idea that in India, he gave, he tells a story about how there was a, 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 there are gangs in big cities in India, I guess, like everywhere, but there are gangs and the police will do things like round up some members, some low lying members of one gang and then go to the head of the gang and say, hey, we have whoever it is they have, you know, pay us, you know, pay us a bribe um, or uh, we're going to kill them. And so the gang members will pay the police a bribe, to get their own gang members back. Or if that doesn't work, they round up some members of a gang and go to the other gang, the, the, the you know, the rival gang to their leaders and say, hey, we have these people. How much you pay to kill us? Kill them. How much will you pay to us, us to kill them? And the thing is, they do it. The gangs pay and the police kill these citizens, these these gang members. And this kind of, he said, he talked about how we have no idea in America how much we just assume the rule of law will keep us safe. It'll keep the police, you know, under control. It'll keep the, the country safe. We just, he, he just, and so this rule of law thing, I'm building up to a point about it, which is his book is stellar. The movie Hillary's America is very, very good. But what happened to Dinesh D'Souza after the previous times he had the audacity to make his movies were, were that 
he was charged with a crime, which I will just quickly tell you what it was. Federal campaign contribution laws, you know, federal, these are federal laws that apply to everybody. And they basically say that in every campaign cycle, you are limited to a certain amount of money that you as an individual can donate to a candidate. And you can donate it in the primary, you know, up to the level. And I'm not saying level because it's changed since Dinesh D'Souza's time but the, of the sto- this story. But the basic point is the federal law limits what you, can, what you are permitted to donate. And so Dinesh D'Souza went around because he had a college friend, a Dartmouth friend, who was running for U.S. Senate from New York. And he wanted to help her. So he went to a few of his friends and said, hey, if you'll donate to her, the, the max, whatever it was at that time, is 2400 I think at that time whatever it was if you'll donate that I'll reimburse you so he he has friends donate the money to her and then he reimbursed them which is circumventing the campaign is viewed as a violation of the federal campaign finance contribution limits and it's viewed it's viewed as a crime and so you know um, he did that I think got two or maybe three other people he got he no maybe it was more than that. He ended up with I think ultimately like a twenty thousand dollar donation to her campaign, which was more than the campaign finance laws permit. And I'm just going to digress a moment to say stop and think about this. How would any federal investigator know that? How, how would it come to their attention unless they had decided I don't like Dinesh D'Souza, we're going to get him for something, and they start watching campaign contributions to this friend of his, they see he's donated and then they're tracking down those friends ultimately. So what happened was it did come to the attention of the federal government that the, um, the, that he had done this. And so he was charged with uh, exceeding the federal campaign finance contribution limits. So I'm sorry, it wasn't 20,000, it was less than that. And I'm sorry to not have those precise facts in front of me, but the short story is that this is something that it is. And he readily admits is not permissible. Shouldn't have done it. But when he went to get a talk to his lawyer, the lawyer just said, I mean, this is never prosecuted. I mean, this is, I mean, you might, you might have to pay a fine, you have to do community service, but this is, you know, we'll take it, this will be not a big deal. But in the case of a documentary filmmaker who dares to cross the Clintons, who dares to cross the Democrats, it meant a lot. It meant that Dinesh D'Souza ended up in 2014 being sentenced for, to a $30,000 fine, you know, which is, as they say, fines are kind of common, but sentenced to time to serve. He had to serve time and he could choose between prison or a community confinement center. And that's like a, you know, it's a, it's in a neighborhood. It's not in the middle of nowhere. It's not a prison, but you check in. I mean, you, you are there, you are confined. They have a a very, very limited schedule. You can leave. I think he could leave on Sundays for a few hours, but the basic point is he had to serve time in a community confinement center. And just if you wonder if there's anything to this idea, I'm saying that, you know, this was a direct retaliation by the Clintons, by the Democrats, against a guy who had the audacity to criticize the Democrats. The judge in the case, Judge Richard Berman, actually said at sentencing, was mocking during the sentencing hearing Dinesh D'Souza's characterization of his prosecution as being politically motivated. I mean, this, the judge's job is to look at the crime, you know, do the sentence, the time if that's you're going to do. But he went out of his way to make the political conclusion, to make the political conclusion 
that this couldn't, you know, that this was any characterization by Dinesh, any attempt to point out that this was a political prosecution was he, the judge scolded him, scolded him about saying that, told him, you know, that's absurd, silly. So I just want to, this is, I, I'm telling you all this for a couple points. One is, so Dinesh D'Souza served his time. What is the ultimate irony, and I just love it, is that the theme for his next book and for Hillary's America came from the observations he made about how criminals operate. And he has that information about how criminals operate by talking to the people in the confinement center. It's really kind of, you know, it's a, a completely uh, turn it on its head. Democrats want to punish him, want to shut him up. Instead of that, he goes to the confinement center. He actually befriends and talks to and this confinement center. These are not people who like, you know, miss an income tax payment. These are people in this confinement center. It's kind of a halfway house. They've been in prison. They're on their way out to the world. They hope they've committed murder, robbery, drug deals. I mean, these are violent, violent, nasty people. But Dinesh D'Souza, you know, took the, he didn't say he made lemonade out of this lemon experience. He went ahead and talked to them and learned not just what they did, but how they think, how they see the world. And he came up with this conclusion that the Democrats and Hillary in particular, are what they're really doing is stealing America. That's why I asked him that question in the interview, stealing America. And you know something? I think that is a profound insight because when you watch the Democrat Party's agenda, what their platform stands for, the way they've conducted our government in the last eight years or nearly eight years under President Obama, it's, it's working away at some of the most basic fundamental ideas of America, one being the rule of law. And the reason I say the rule of law is so relevant here, at the same time or near the same time frame when Dinesh D'Souza got sentenced to a confinement center. Oh, and the other thing the judge did, by the way, and continues to hassle him with, he got sentenced to psychiatric counseling. Like this judge is saying, you don't like the Clintons, you don't like the Democrats, must be crazy. So even after the psychiatrist would put in his report to the judge, this person is completely healthy, there's no reason to continue counseling, no counseling needed, the judge kept ordering counseling. This is to harass him, to humiliate him. And I just love that, you know, Dinesh D'Souza just turned it on its head. But as a comparison about this rule of law point, there was a gentleman named Amar, Amar Singh. He was a donor to the Democrats from India. He donated something like $1.1 to $5 million to the Clinton Foundation. But the, oh, this is the other one. This is Sant Chatel. And he is also an Indian American businessman. He generated millions of dollars for the Clinton Foundation. And there were also, if this isn't the right guy's name, is another one. There was another person at that time who had done exactly what Dinesh D'Souza did, which is get people to keep donating and, and reimbursing them. Far more money involved than was involved in Dinesh D'Souza's case. But that guy got no time. And this is when he talks about the rule of law and feeling safe in a country where you assume the laws will kind of be evenly applied. This is why people, even on the left, fear the Clintons. It's why they see them as just just really nasty operators. Because, And I will tell you, I was really, really surprised, in fact, just shocked, and I said to Dinesh D'Souza, would make another documentary. He's kind of saying, I don't care what you try to do to me. I won't stop talking. And his documentary, I'll tell you the other pieces of it that really are harmful to Hillary Clinton this election cycle, and I urge you to go see this movie, uh, and it's called, again, Hillary's America. He traces the history of the Democrat Party 
from the time of slavery to the time of the Jim Crow laws to the time of segregation to the Ku Klux Klan to the modern day creation of the welfare plantation, also known as the Great Society, the creation of massive dependency on the government and keeping the poorest of Americans poor. He traces the treatment of the Democrat Party from the the inception of the Civil War and before, all the way up to today, to make the point the Democrat Party is the one whose policies and actions and have been the source of brutality toward black Americans. This is what would make Hillary completely crazy. He's pointing out a big segment of voters that she needs. The Democrats are not with you. After the break, we'll be back with my leading lady, Carrie Kellerman, and on to hour two. You're listening to RNCN, the number one source for premium talk radio. for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. If you're a regular listener, you know at the top of our second hour, we always have a roundtable question and a rapid fire answer, which I'm going to get to in one moment. But we were talking before the break about the uh, other person, the Democrat side, who had donated very, very similar conduct to Dinesh D'Souza and got basically nothing. I'll make sure to get those facts to you. It was, it, he's a U.S. citizen, Sant Singh Chatwal. In 2014, he pled guilty in a Brooklyn federal district court to arranging multiple straw donors. And that's the term they use when to do what I described before the break. You go to your friend and say, if you donate the max to my candidate, I'll reimburse you as a straw donor. In a lavish scheme, tens of thousands of dollars, far more money than Dinesh D'Souza did, into Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign, he also funneled additional tens of thousands of dollars into the federal campaigns of three other Democrat candidates between 2007 and 2011, including Chris Dodd of Connecticut. So he's done far worse. And on top of that, this guy admitted that his reason, he said out loud, his reason was to try to buy political influence in the White House. Dinesh D'Souza just liked a friend of his and wanted her elected to the Senate for whatever, you know, because he thought she'd be a good senator. And this guy on the Democrat side, Sant Singh Chatwal, only got parole, got zero, zero prison time and had to pay a fine. I just want you to think about when you talk about people say they're worried about the, worried about the rule of law and how the Clintons and the Democrats function. He has nothing. Basically nothing for punishment, far worse than Dinesh D'Souza. So I really encourage you to just support this brave patriot, Dinesh D'Souza. Okay, we only have a quick thing in this segment. And over there, Mr. Neil, if you can hit clip one on the um, clip one, we're going to this is this is a Bernie Sanders nominee nomination. I am so proud of Bernie. continues our revolution continues 
never forget the man who leads us. So with pride, gratitude, optimism for the future we all build together, I stand before you for the purposes of seconding the nomination of our friend and hero, Senator Bernie Sanders. And that, my friends, that, my friends, was in the Democrat National Convention last week. And after the break, our rapid-fire question for Kerry Kellerman is, can that voter come around to Donald Trump? That woman, and if you saw her at the convention, she's a very attractive, you know, kind of not looking like a uh, Occupy Wall Street person. And she's talking about Bernie as a movement, a revolution, as a leader. So the question, my rapid fire question for Carrie Kellerman, my leading lady here today is, can Democrats bring back these young socialists who are fired up at Bernie Sanders or does Donald Trump have a chance to get them? I think he has a chance to get a few. I don't think he'll get all of them by any means, but I think a bunch of them. Uh, first of all, I don't think they're embracing socialism per se. I don't think they're ideological, but I think they as much as they see an outsider versus insider uh, battle going on. They had in a candidate who was correctly in a lot of ways diagnosing the problem in uh, on in the area of trade that America was losing out, uh, that the deals we've struck on a global basis are not helping America, that they're hurting the middle class in America. And I do think he's right about that problem. Uh, but what he represented for the for his supporters was somebody who was listening, somebody who had his uh, finger on the pulse of wh- where people said the problem was. So you had someone who had the voters ear versus a very tin ear of the Democrat elites. They uh, the Democrat elites treated these Bernie supporters terribly. Um, the the, the DNC leaks from the WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks the, yeah. the emails showed that the party was actively trying to suppress and misrepresent Bernie. They had this superdelegate uh, thing going on during the primaries where Bernie could win a state, but then Hillary would get all of the delegates. And if there was a tie, there was a coin toss. And wow, she won six out of six. <laughs> I don't know how that happens. What are those odds? <laughs> um, but when they get to uh, the DNC actual convention, they get locked out of the rules meetings. I show, there's a picture showing them let us in, locked out of the rules meetings, uh, trying minute. to yeah, trying to um, change the rules on the superdelegates, get rid of them, because that's that goes against one man, one vo- a vote. Uh, and then when they're in the audience of the convention, they're, the, they're turning the lights out on sections of, of these Bernie voters where they're chanting no more war or something. And they just turn the lights out on them. Uh, they've been told once Hillary was made the nominee, they were told to uh, drop their signs or uh, lose their credentials, leave the signs alone. Um, so it's really uh, you. They don't feel heard. Um, so I think they're either going to be disenchanted, disenfranchised or they're just and stay home or they might go to someone who they feel is listening. Who that is, is I don't De- know. Debbie George asks, America, can we talk? We'll finish this up in the next segment. But, you know, this is the Democrat convention. You're watching it. And Bernie Sanders folks are just not going to be happy with how he was treated. And what that means for Donald Trump, we'll keep talking about. Can you hear 
and welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. So grateful you've tuned in. My leading lady tonight, I just have one leading lady here tonight, Carrie Kellen, but she can cover for two. She's amazing. <laughs> we were talking before the break. I usually do at the top of the second hour, I do a roundtable question, rapid fire answers. And it was about whether, you know, what do we think after the DNC? We've been away from that convention for a week. Do we think the Bernie people who were just ardently for him will eventually come around and support Hillary will they eventually come around and, and maybe go over to Trump and so we're, we're on that subject I do want to get on to what I think is going to be and, and so you know, you know my two senses I think the vast majority of them I, I think some are earnestly socialist I mean you heard I heard some of the speeches and I think some of them just liked an outsider as, as Kerry was saying before the break somebody who's just going to break what they see as, as immoral unethical um, you know kind of gridlock not just gridlock and wash but too much influence by outside players. So I think a lot of them will just stay home. And, you know, that woman, we heard her clip, she's talking about perpetuating the movement to her. So I think some are like that. So it's, it's an interesting thing. I don't think that a lot of them are going to jump on board with Hillary. And, and, you know, so there you go. But I want to turn and talk about this is this is the year of the 2016 presidential election. We have, you know, we have Islamic terror attack after attack after attack. It just goes on daily, and we have the parties trying to deal with that issue, and we also have a, um, you know, a, a concern, a broader concern about where is the United States involved in fighting this militarily? What are we going to do about it? And so this is an opportunity. We talk about two different positions. I want to have a clip played for you that was from the um, Democrat National Convention when Leon Panetta spoke, and you probably all know the name, uh, Leon Panetta. He was Secretary of Defense from 2011 to 2013, and before that, 2009 to 11, he was a CIA director. So he spoke about the dangers of ISIS. Listen to how the Democrats respond. Throat was slit by terrorists who stormed his church during mass. These murderers must be stopped. And he praises dictators from Saddam Hussein to Vladimir Putin. The American dream Okay, in case that was at all fuzzy because there's so much noise, I'll first tell you that First of all, Leon Panetta bringing up ISIS and the killing of this French priest was the first mention of the convention by anyone that there's even a terrorist threat out there. It was a tone-deaf convention the first day when I would say in, in, in many polls, safety or Islamic terror is among the top issues people are concerned about. The Democrats tried to run a convention without mentioning it, but then they did. Leon Panetta gets on board to, to talk about it, and you heard in the beginning when they said, you know, these terrorists, must, these murders must be stopped, but what they were chanting, if you couldn't tell, what they were chanting, he's talking, he just said before that clip, this is Leon Panetta talking uh, about the terrorism, he had said that there was that Hillary Clinton was the most prepared ever. She had a fabulous plan. She's going to destroy ISIS, blah, blah. And then he went on to talk about he was criticizing Donald Trump's uh, approach. What the crowd was chanting, people involved enough in politics to show up and be a delegate at the Democrat National Convention were chanting first, no more war, no more war. And they were drowned and they actually forced Leon Panetta 
to stop talking. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, two little goofballs in the corner. It was a mass number of people chanting no more war. And then as he continued talking about Islamic terrorism, they were chanting lies. L-I-E-S, lies, 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 lies. And finally, some other Democrats overtook him and and uh, chanted uh, USA. Okay, so once you get that picture in your head, this is how the Democrats did it. I want to play a clip of an ad that Donald Trump has coming out, or maybe it is out right now. This is the widow of the, one of the four people killed in Benghazi. Go ahead to clip three. My husband, Ty Woods, was a Navy SEAL and a fierce patriot. He was killed during the attack in Benghazi while saving American lives under the charge of our State Department. When Hillary Clinton was challenged by Congress on who was to blame for the attack, her response was a disgrace. The fact is, we had four dead Americans. Was it because of a protest or was it because of guys out for a walk one night who decided they'd go kill some Americans? What difference at this point does it make? The difference is while most families are reunited, Some make the ultimate sacrifice. The difference is having accountability. The difference is being truthful to the American people. Okay, so Carrie Kellerman, you heard those two. I just think that ad that Donald Trump's going to air with her name is Dorothy Woods. She's the widow of Ty Woods is is devastating. Mm -hmm. And for women voters, I can't imagine saying, oh, but I'm going to vote for Hillary because she's a woman Mm -hmm. instead of I want to vote for someone Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think about that? What is your reaction? I think that a personal story, an anecdote, an eyewitness account, a testimony, these are the most powerful ways to change the working model of a listener. If they have in their head that that immigration is fine, these are just loving people coming across our border to do jobs Americans won't do. Or if, you know, when you hear a story of somebody who's hurt by illegal immigration, Kate Steinle, uh, Spencer Govach, somebody like this. When you hear the stories of the human loss, that's what changes a model. That's what changes a mind. That's what changes a heart. And so Donald Trump going after the personal story of the human cost of policies is what's going to change, uh, change a voter's mind. I couldn't agree more. And if you folks have not seen this ad, you will over the next several months. This is a woman, by the way, this uh, widow of Ty Woods. She herself is a military veteran, and she comes from a family of veterans, as did her husband. And, I mean, she's not sobbing hysterically, but she's earnest. She's serious. It's a compelling ad. And I love what you said, Carrie, about personalizing it all, because, you know, we've all seen over the last year or two years, we've seen pictures of ISIS, you know, uh, marching, whatever that was, 25 men in orange jumpsuits to go behead them on a beach. And mm-hmm. we say, my gosh, this is horrible. What's wrong with these people, with, with uh, ISIS, with radical Islam? What's wrong with these people? But when you see that our State Department and Hillary Clinton is ahead of it, mm-hmm. she could have helped. In fact, there was a, a detail that came out last night. I didn't know this until last night. I mean, the, the personal story is just breathtakingly um, effective. I, I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. It's going to make people say, oh, this is a real mom. Yeah. She lost her child. Yep. I mean, she lost her husband. She has, they have a small child. Well, de- uh, Jim, sorry, geographically, it is hitting home. Remember, we had a woman beheaded in Oklahoma by yeah. someone who was radicalized in a prison. And recently in Nice, France, yes, that's across the Atlantic, but two Texans were killed in that terrorist attack. 
I, I people want a strong, strong answer about this. It's not okay anymore to keep mm-hmm. saying it's isolated, it's random, it's not a problem, it's not really as limited, something else. People are starting to go with what I was saying at the start of the show. Mm-hmm. It is the teachings of Islam. It's not all Muslims, but it's the teachings of Islam, and Islam must moderate and reform. And in the meantime, the the idea, and this is tied into all this, is you know who is going to actually fight ISIS? I don't know when your Secretary of State for the last for the first four years of, of Barack Obama's administration, as Islamic terrorism grew and grew and grew in the world, mm-hmm. do you get to say I'm tough on terror? Is that does that no. sell? No. And in fact, the analogy I would I would give for the voters, the way it breaks down for the voters, is that we have a cancerous tumor, and you can go and get two different opinions from two different doctors. Um, one doctor can say. Oh, no, everything's good. Everything's fine. You're going to be just great. Even though you something inside you knows, gosh, something's not right. I feel it. Something's wrong. Or you can go to a doctor that can say, yeah, found a tumor, the way to starve it, cut off the blood supply. Let's get you. Let's get you better. Let's attack this disease. And you're going to feel better than you did before. But we've got to deal with this tumor. Absolutely. You know, we are, um, I, I love that analogy about you want, I mean, you want a doctor, you want, if it's your car, you take in to a dealer, you don't want them to say, oh, everything's fine. And you realize, no, actually the brakes are going. You'd mm-hmm. rather have them tell you the brakes are going. We're yep. going to have to fix that. This is something where we have decided as a, um, as a country, people are informed by social media. They know the problem, and it's just not going to fly for the Democrats to keep on talking about uh, Islamic terror is a minor thing. It's under control. It's not going to fly. You know, I want to be sure you understand. We are, uh, again, mentioned, as I did at the start of the show, we are pre-recording this show, and I am pre-recording about 10 days before it's going to air. So some things you may be saying may sound like, wow, you know, a lot's changed since then. And uh, But it's not, I mean, it's we are talking about issues that are going to be relevant from now through the election cycle and honestly way past the election. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just thought in light of we're talking about Islamic terror, something else very large may have happened by then, mm-hmm. by the time this show is aired. And I want to make sure you know that where we are today is what we know today. You know, on this whole um, uh, topic we're dealing with and Hillary, I want to turn to, if we can talk about in the next segment, what power Twitter has had um, to uh, shape the election, to shape people's perception, shape what we understand, and how they're competing with mainstream media to get the truth out. Come right back after this. Can you hear, can you hear and welcome back to America Can We Talk? And yes, we can talk. We're talking about today, really, the 2016 presidential campaign. We just finished watching the GOP convention, then the Democrat convention, and, and we're kind of letting a lot of what was said settle in. And we're thinking and thinking about, I want to just share, we did in the last segment, we contrasted the um, attitude of at least some Democrats at the Democrat convention who were chanting, no more war, no more war, and lies in response to a speech by Secretary of Defense, former Secretary of Defense, Liam Panetta, who was trying to describe the danger of radical Islam, trying to describe the danger of ISIS. And the answer from the crowd was, no more war? Lies? I mean, calling him a liar for pointing out. So I just think in this election cycle, the Democrats have a really big problem because Hillary is claiming she's the one, she knows the world, she's been everywhere, and everybody, and but their base is very radicalized, very left. A lot of them are. And the other thing I want to say about it was, on the GOP side, when you have something personal like the um, the widow of one of the Benghazi men telling 
This is what happened in my life. This, it does matter. I'll tell you something else about a poll that came out. I know I said we're going to talk about Twitter, but this poll is really good. I mean, to have this issue be front and center in this campaign is vital. A Fox poll just came out this morning. Or actually, we're, we're pre-recording 10 days ahead of time, so it came out on July 28th. 78% of people polled are concerned or very concerned about possible future attacks by Islamic terror. 78%. I would like to know what the other 22 is thinking. Like, you think it's not going to happen here? Come on. Anyway, 53% disapprove of the job Obama's doing in handling terrorism. But the most compelling one is 84% are nervous about America's ability to prevent terror attacks at home. I mean, I'm nervous. I, mm-hmm. I think everyone I know is nervous. So these, these kind of polls tell you that the parties have to have, you can have glowing speeches, blathering on and on about love and everything else. Mm-hmm. And, and love matters. Yes, it does. We all love our neighbors. We love our country. But people want to hear you're serious about keeping this country safe. And I think Hillary's going to have a very hard time doing that, trying to balance. Yes, I'm trying to bring tens of thousands of more Islamic refugees to America but don't worry, none of them are like from, from Syria and, and North Africa and other countries. But don't worry, none of them are like the people you're seeing over there in Nice and Germany and all over the, uh, Europe and frankly in America. So she's got, she's got a tough sell. Okay, changing subject entirely. So I'm on Twitter and I'd love if you'd follow me at Debbie Can We Talk. So Carrie Kellerman, who's one of my leading ladies sitting here, <laughs> she also has, um, she kind of convinced me of the value of Twitter. I wasn't. Uh, all that into it. I love, love, love Facebook. Oh, and we have our new Facebook rolling, America Can We Talk. Go to our Facebook page, comment, like, share. We mm-hmm. love it. But on Twitter, I couldn't see the value as much, but Twitter's had an amazing role in this campaign cycle. So Carrie's going to tell you some of the cool things about it. Okay, let me just uh, tell you that there's different uh, depth levels for different social media. Uh, if if uh, Facebook is kind of like snorkeling and a blog is like scuba diving, <laughs> Twitter is like water skiing. It's for people who want to surf and want to quickly ascertain what's going on out there. What are the big topics? What are the big subjects? It's a great analogy. <laughs> so uh, Twitter's quick. It's if you have ADD like me, it's great. Do not. You do <laughs> so, not. But go so ahead. Like the attention span of a squirrel. It's for you. Um, but t- the reason Twitter, I think, is taking off is because there is a very large segment of the population who has become extremely cynical about the mainstream media, just like we have about government. Uh, And what we see is the corrupting influence in government, which is money, is also seen as a corrupting influence in the media. So we know they're getting paid, but the question is by who and to say what. So people have gotten very, very skeptical of what they see in the media. Uh, So what they're doing is they're turning to people who don't have anything to gain from it. People who are, quote unquote, citizen reporters. So, for example, we have um, a guy, his name, uh, I'll just tell you what he's what he's done first. He's gone to both conventions, the RNC and the DNC. He's not gone inside. He's simply there to cover what's happening on the outside of these conventions. So. At the DNC, he was outside, and he's showing things through a Twitter app. Well, it's just an app called Periscope. In other words, you can live stream video of what's happening in live time. So he's out there, and he's showing things that the the mainstream media doesn't want you to see. Uh, For example, during Obama's speech, there were people outside the DNC Convention Center burning flags. 
an American flag. So this is something that you can see. You can see it's happening, but the mainstream media would never show it. So people want the truth, and they're willing to reward people who are telling the truth uh, by following them on Twitter. So they can have an enormous amount of influence. This particular tweeter said that if he was offered a show on Fox or his Twitter account, he would choose his Twitter account. Wow. He thinks it has more influence. So <clears throat> it's, it's very, very powerful. Um, but anyway, the, one of the things he was able to show was after the Bernie supporters were, after Bernie left the race, after he threw all of his delegates to Hillary, uh, you had, he, he was outside the DNC and out comes a young man who looks almost exactly like Josh Ernest. He's got on a suit and a tie and he's got his little Bernie, he's got his little delegate badge on and he m makes this speech about how, you know, I'm a Bernie delegate, but we all need to get behind Hillary Clinton. And all these media, I'm talking 15, 20, 25 people with cameras just glom around this guy. Meanwhile, a woman Bernie supporter delegate with her little lavalier badge on comes out and she goes, I think this is terrible. Nobody's listening to me. Nobody's repping my, representing my point of view. What, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? And she's standing all by herself. All the media, like a hive of bees, is around the Bernie supporter that now supports Hillary and the woman who feels disenfranchised is standing all alone. In real time, a video shows uh, that, the, that the media, the mainstream media, is going to toe the party line for the Democrats. And so that's why the, the leaks were important. You saw the collusion between the Democratic National Convention and the mainstream media. And, and the WikiLeaks, there it was. yeah. There it is in Tell real about time. the thing where they, they shut off the lights in the convention. Yeah, it was during the Leon Panetta vote when the no war, no war chant was going on. Somebody in charge of lighting actually shut down the lighting in the section of delegates where the chanting was happening and they realized it. And so they got out their phones and they were actually holding up the lights on their phone to say, hey, we're still here. But there was a lot there was a lot of optics going on. Optics are very, very powerful. Uh, and there were a lot of things happening and going on that the mainstream media didn't want you to see, but it was definitely happening. And you saw that picture of the lights being shut down by the DNC and then the cameras, uh, the phone lights mm -hmm. being turned on because of, of Twitter, because of the picture on Twitter? The, yes, I saw it on Twitter. But the, probably the more powerful thing I saw on Twitter was right after uh, it was right after Hillary was named the nom nominee. There was about 1900 delegates that left the convention center right before Bill Clinton spoke. Uh, they had one of those little pre-packaged video packages right before where it was talking about Hillary and Bill and all this kind of stuff right before Bill Clinton was supposed to come out. But after Bernie said, I want, you know, I, I make a motion that Hillary be our nominee, there was an exodus out of that arena. And the, the media didn't want you to see it. Somebody snapped a photo of all these empty chairs and someone said, oh, that you just you just shot that during dinner. Well, no, here comes along another tweeter with Periscope He's showing, he's panning the arena, he's zooming in on masses, massive amounts of empty seats, and in the background you can hear the video package right before Bill spoke, so you know exactly when it happened. Yeah, so the media's attempt to to hide the fact mm -hmm. that people walked out. Okay, so I'm going to turn one other thing, and Carrie is the, the Twitter expert in our crowd here. So there is a thing like, people hear hashtags, and I, I know hashtags are referred to, it's a subject matter, like we yeah. talked, I, I think, last week about WikiLeaks, where they had on a DNC yep. 
WikiLeaks hashtag and Twitter pulled it down. But it, what's so important about the hashtags and also describe trending? We have like underway one minute. OK, actually. well, the hashtag with the Twitter is a way of showing what topics people it's like a are, subject line. Yeah. What topics most people are most interested in. In order to get something trending, you need to get more people tweeting on that hashtag. But Twitter is manipulating the hashtags. There was a DNC leaks with a plural S on the end. And once it started to climb and get into the top trends, uh, Twitter took the S off. So when you're hashtagging, it auto-corrected without the S. And now that subject matter has to start at ground zero again and build its way back up. So it's a way of kind of tamping down or censoring what people are interested in. Okay, so the thing that's really cool about Twitter, and if I spent more time on it, I would even I would be able to speak even more eloquently about it. But the basic thing is, it's a way for people to talk to each other, unfiltered by the media, unfiltered by radio hosts or television cameras. It's just people talking to people, and they are. And so, if you follow each other, you can see videos that are happening that you don't see, and you, you see kind of real time stuff that's happening. We have like thirty seconds. I see it as a little bit more than people talking to people. I see Twitter and some of the pe- some of the people on Twitter actually doing the job the mainstream media is not doing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely the case. You were talking about in this election cycle, the power of Twitter. We haven't even talked about Donald Trump's tweeting, but to just quickly say, if in 2008, President Obama supposedly capitalized on Twitter, and that was just the biggest uh, impact, well, if Twitter matters, Donald Trump's got it down. Come back for our last segment in just a moment. This is Debbie Georgiatis, and I'm just so grateful you've tuned in. I want to do two quick thank yous before we launch into the subject, the question of how much of the women's vote in America will Hillary get after her entire campaign theme seems to be, did you notice I'm a woman? But before I do that, I want to give, first of all, thanks to the sponsor for this show. GC Works provides the funding for America Can We Talk? And I am so grateful for that. GC Works is a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology, and they deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. So grateful for them. I also want to give thanks, as I do periodically, to the uh, woman who does the music for the show, Krista Branch. You know, her songs, they are so the spirit of the show, I can hardly stand it. I mean, they're just, they make me smile. Honestly, often when we're, the show is, every segment's uh, kicking in, into gear, and we're getting ready to roll, we're in our seats kind of rocking out to the music. I mean, and also the message of it is so, you know, um, that, that song, I Am America, that, that's really the theme of the show. You are America. Everybody who has their eyes open, who's paying attention, uh, who's thinking about America. You're the ones that shape America. We cannot sit back and let politicians decide things. We can't sit back and just say, well, that's for other people. It's not my thing. We shape, every generation shapes America's future. And so to the extent you speak up about issues you care about, to the extent you back the candidates and you, you do things to help them who stand for what you stand for, these are this is how you shape America. You really are America. It's not owned by anybody else, but every single person who chooses chooses to be involved. And so, and I, my, my, my book, which is called Ladies Can We Talk, I sign off on it. Every time I sell a book, I sign up, speak up for America. Because if you let things happen, like the slide towards socialism, the destruction of the rule of law, any of the ways in which the American left is attempting to crush the American idea, or in Dinesh D'Souza's words, steal America, 
You're part of the problem if you don't speak up, if you don't say, no, that isn't right. We don't do that here. So that I want to make that pitch for the music. Krista Branch, you can go online, get her music. It's just stellar. Okay, so last thing I want to talk about today. So we had the DNC convention, and I honestly thought it was kind of overwhelmingly, obnoxiously kind of vote for me, I'm a woman. It wasn't everything, mm-hmm. but there was something about, you know, I, I am, I would love a woman president. I am, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm grateful for that women got to go to law school, mm-hmm. that we have equal access to college and education and, and jobs and everything. And I'm actually grateful that we made changes in America several decades ago so that you don't, you can't discriminate based on sex mm-hmm. in making employment decisions. I think all that's great. But being a woman, having a certain anatomy doesn't qualify you for anything. Mm-mm. It just is who you happen to be. So I guess, Carrie, maybe you think differently about this. I think Hillary's I'm a woman thing is not resonating with women, except maybe like 60, 65 and over, who kind of maybe are part of that feminist movement. Do you think her I am woman thing is resonating? I do not. I don't. Because um, I think Ivanka Trump said it the best. She said, my father is colorblind and general neutral, and it's time we hire the person who's best for the job, regardless of what color they are, regardless of what sex they are, who is the best for the job based on merit. I think that's where a lot of people are. They just want the best person for the job. What are their skill sets? What are their life experiences? That's where we are. I think we're tired of being grouped and tired of being isolated. Yeah, I love that point. And then I got to thinking, you know, because, uh, you know, it, it is, I will, let me say this, it is historic. Hillary Clinton is the first woman to get the nomination of a major political party, or and Carrie was telling me before we were talking, before the show started, there was a woman who got the nomination in 1872. And some, but we don't know what party. And so I don't think it was, <laughs> it was Republican and Democrat. But anyway, so Hillary Clinton, and, and it is an accomplishment. And she is, you know, you, you can't take that away from her. But it doesn't make her qualified to be president. No. I, I was just thinking about the most, you know, if you think of women leaders who've truly changed the world, the, the number one on my list mm-hmm. is Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. the former prime minister of England. And I look back at her campaign slogans. Mm-hmm. Do you think she said, I'm woman, hear me roar? No, <laughs> no, she did not. I, I, actually, she said something kind of profound. Uh, she had fabulous slogans about socialism. Um, in fact, and, and about a lot of things that are just, they are really, America's kind of replaying mm-hmm. where England was when Margaret Thatcher came along. We're replaying that today. Mm-hmm. At the time Margaret Thatcher came along, the tax rate, individual income tax rate, and the wealthiest people in England, we have friends who left England because of this, mm-hmm. was over 90%. In fact, it was higher than 91%. It was, they were taking, and, and the person on the labor side who was running against uh, Margaret Thatcher, who was running in the, you know, this deliberate liberal side, the Democrat side, was running on adding a net worth tax. So he's going to say, in addition to if your salary is whatever it is, you have to pay 90% of it in tax. You have to calculate up everything you own, your net worth, and then turn it into the government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was what drove our good friends to leave England. They just said, you know, we're, this is crazy. Yeah. I feel like America's kind of there. Like the Democrats are talking so much about wealth and wealthy people and nasty billionaires. Mm-hmm. And, and how much more can they tax so, I, I mean, I can see them trending the way uh, the Labor Party was in England. Yeah, I think we're, is, we're, we're issue-based now. And if your issue, if your number one concern is national security, you're going to vote for the person who's going to help you feel the safest or thinks that has the best policy on national security. If your number one issue is the economy, you're going to vote for the person who's going to be the best at 
bringing in jobs. So I think we're more issue-based now than gender-based, which is just silly. Which is actually what we should be voting on is what's going to happen to America. So here's one more uh, Margaret Thatcher quote. I love this woman, but she said... She was talking about how the other side's always arguing for consensus or in today's terms, can't we be like part and nonpartisan and get along? Her quote, do you think you would ever have heard of Christianity if the apostles had gone out and said, I believe in consensus? <laughs> Isn't that great? Instead of truth. Yeah. Instead of there, there was such thing as truth. Fabulous line. Mm-hmm. She also said, and this is about women. She said, Margaret Thatcher, I just love this. She had two quotes. One was. I owe nothing to women's lib. God bless her. This was yeah. 1979, I think, yeah. when she, she ran. She was right in the middle of it. Yeah. She, I mean, it was, it was a popular term. It was probably trendy to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, but the other thing she said, which I thought was really insightful, and I'm curious what you think about it. She said, the woman's mission is not to enhance the masculine spirit, but to express the feminine. Hers is not to preserve a man-made world, but to create a human world by the infusion of the feminine element into all of its activities. Beautiful. I mean, absolutely beautiful. And what she's, you know, what is implicit in that is she's rejecting the whole gender confusion. Gender is nothing. She's, she's saying, yeah, there's a, there are great qualities of femininity. Well, there's a false choice too. people say either or she's saying, no, it's both and men and women together. That, yeah. bring out the, that can bring out the best in each other if we'll just work together. And not antagonistically either. Correct. I mean, this, this, this women's lib anger, which Hillary is trying to, she's, she's trying to walk a really dicey line, I think. She's trying to say, I'm the most qualified, and besides I'm a woman, and I'm a woman's liber, but I don't hate men, but I mean, she just, I just think she has a very confused place. And I think that a lot of feminists are frustrated with her for, she's trying to carve out this place also kind of politically in the middle. She's a centerist on the Democrat side. I think a lot of the feminists are thinking, I don't want to, I mean, the leftist feminists, I don't want a centerist. Come on, get out there. And I mean, she's really, well, she's got a hard time. The, the, dem- the convention had a mothers of the movement night, but where was the father's night? Where are the men in the Democratic Party? Yeah, men in those families. Is, yeah, yeah, where are they? Yeah. The other one is they should have had women also who whose husbands were police officers mm. who were lost. I and mean, this it was kind of, it was a very targeted, victim-creating, we're going to tell you again, for African-Americans in America, you're a bunch of victims. And I mean, I, I'm sorry for every any woman who's ever lost a child. It's heartbreaking. But it was a very skewed and intentionally targeted message. Okay, one more thing from Margaret Thatcher, and which is kind of wrapping up to where we are, too. Socialist governments traditionally do make a financial mess. They always run out of other people's money. It's quite characteristic of them. Isn't that great? Absolutely. She said it very, very well. What, what cannot go on forever won't. Yeah. It can't. Yeah. And actually, she had one last shot at socialism, because I do think the socialist agenda is now in the forefront in American thought because of Bernie Sanders. Even if, and I agree with what you were saying Mm -hmm. earlier that a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, they just loved he was the outsider. They saw him as the fighter and and he wasn't really going to be socialist, even though I think he would if he could. Mm -hmm. But they're they're not necessarily, but they like the outsider thing. But it's still become a more common conversation in America. What's so bad about socialism? In fact, there were comments from delegates I read saying, I want it to stop being a bad word in our conversation. Socialism isn't bad. We should be talking about this. But here's one other comment that Margaret Thatcher gave. Because she just, to me, while she was so great, she didn't run on being a woman. But she knew that femininity was a good thing. Mm -hmm. She ran on being a strong 
lover of freedom, a lover of the the whole concept of free markets mm-hmm. and of, of just trying to inspire the best in individuals to make their way in life, not to become a, a member of the, as it's been called by many people, the government plantation, living off the government. But here's her, her she said, and what a prize we have to fight for no less than the chance to banish from our land the dark, divisive clouds of Marxist socialism. Mm. That's a great line. And, you know, again, I love she's calling socialism divisive mm-hmm. because it is. I mean, it's just a it is it is, you know, uh, who is it we had in the show? Oh, Star Parker was talking is essentially premised on coveting. Mm-hmm. It's a, and, and you hear it in the statements by Hillary, by anybody else, you know, on the left, you're supposed to really resent these successful people. Yeah. It it creates, it's just exactly the opposite of what a Judeo-Christian or just a a good society should be. You should want other people to succeed. Well, it starts with a a wrong premise that uh, wealth is a zero-sum game. And if somebody has a bigger slice of it, that means your slice is smaller. And that's not the way it is at all. Absolutely true. Okay. Um, I can't, you know, we're we're pre-recording today, as I mentioned earlier. I can't see the clock. And so I just want to quick say, this is America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis and Carrie Kelman, my leading lady. I thank you so very much for tuning in. Thanks for the great Dinesh D'Souza interview. Come back every week and visit us on Facebook at America Can We Talk. You're listening to RNCN, the digital destination for premium talk radio.